Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series. It's called Easter, It's Purpose and Promise. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Sin, That Nasty Three-Letter Word. We're celebrating the Easter season. You know, Palm Sunday is given to the celebration of Jesus' triumphal ride into Jerusalem, and that's followed by Good Friday, the day in which Jesus died on the cross. And of course, that's followed by Easter Sunday, which is a celebration of his victorious resurrection from the grave. You know, this year, rather than simply recounting the events of Easter as I've done before, I want to speak about two important issues. I want us to consider first some very practical and yet theological issues that come from the cross. And then next week, I want to consider the key practical and theological issues that arise from the resurrection. What practical benefits are there in the resurrection of Jesus? So let's start. I want to speak about a very important theological issue. What necessitated the cross of Jesus? I mean, why is the cross so important for Christians? Why is the cross more important to us than the miracles of Jesus, than the, even the teachings of Jesus, than anything else that Jesus did? And if you aren't a Christian and have had little dealings with Christians in the past, you you might have noticed, however, that the cross is central to Christian thinking. And and if you've been to a Catholic church, you will have seen a crucifix. You might have marveled that an object of worship would display Jesus hanging on a cross. And yet, listen to the words of Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Translation, Christians are forbidden from bragging about anything except for the cross. The cross makes every other beautiful thing in this world pale in comparison to that which is the most lovely thing ever seen. Jesus hanging on a cross makes our hearts swell with joy and makes us sing praises to God. But how can such a bloody spectacle bring such joy? And it is to this one question that I give this week of theological reflection. And let me say that this series is both for Christians as well as for non-Christians who who are wondering about the faith. And if you're a newcomer to this part of the world and wonder what is it that Christians believe and why they believe it, well, these next two weeks are intended as an explanation. So I can ask you to to stay with me for two weeks, and I promise you it's going to be worth your while. So then, where do we begin? Well, I suppose I could begin with the words from Romans 3.25, wherein we're told that the cross of Jesus is a propitiation, or sacrifice offered up to God to assuage his wrath. God is angry, and the sacrifice of Jesus is offered up to God, an offering that God the Father finds to be pleasing. That's, That's a mouthful. But I don't think that's where we start with the story of the cross. I want to begin, rather, with a prior concept. I want to begin with a word, sin. You know, in our society, sin is a nasty little three-letter word. And we often speak of four-letter words, which are words of profanity. And, you know, for many, the word sin is a word that's far worse than any profanity that they've ever heard. For them, the idea of sin that, that leaves people feeling like they're bad people. They don't make the gray, that they should feel bad about themselves. And our culture rejects the very idea of sin. 
You know, rather instead, our, our culture stresses that we're inherently good. I mean, after all, look, says our culture, look at all the good things that people do. Look how they help each other out. I mean, look at things like medicine or what's done for the poor, or helping young people make the most of their lives. Isn't the basic impulse of all people good? But of course, if sin is not a problem, then the cross is not necessary. You know, at the outset, Christians say Jesus died for our sins. And so let me put it plainly. If you don't believe you're a sinner, the Christian faith is just not for you, and Jesus has nothing to teach you. Ah, well then, it seems to me that the place to start is to start with the unpopular concept, a concept central to the Christian faith, sin. And here I think it's important to dispel some false notions of sin. There are some who are going to argue that sin is selfishness. But the Bible never defines sin that way. And depending on how you define selfishness, well, I think that some could argue that selfishness can be good. Well, for instance, Jesus, and it's recorded in Matthew 6.20, told his followers to store up for themselves treasure in heaven, treasure that could never be destroyed. Well, then, why would anyone do that? Well, the answer, they're seeking their own self-interest. And furthermore, what can be wrong with seeking, well, happiness or fulfillment or seeking to be a person filled with hope. Look, a great many things that we do are done because we love ourselves and do seek our own good. That's why we go to work in the morning and that's why we clothe ourselves and feed ourselves and try to stay in shape and live a healthy lifestyle. I mean, these things are positive and these things are done in order to take care of ourselves. I mean, there is nothing wrong with that. But let me hasten to add that there's a dark side of selfishness. It's when we care for ourselves at the expense of others. It's when we don't care for our fellow man, but abuse others so that we can get ahead. And these things are selfish in a way that we would call sinful. But still, I've not talked about what the Bible actually teaches about the definition of sin. So let's start with a few assumptions. The first is God exists, and there is only one true God. The second is that the only true God is infinitely good. That is, God is the final standard of all that's good. Everything that God does is worthy of approval. And furthermore, everything that is good in this world comes about because God has ultimately done it. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Creation is the result of the goodness and moral rightness of God. The physical universe is an expression of God's goodness. Physical matter is not lesser reality. You know, some philosophies teach that. Listen, physical matter is an expression of the grace of God who, who both created all things and who, after he had created them, called them good. And it is at this juncture that we've got to add something. God is not only the creator of human beings, but the great creator who is infinitely good has declared what is good in the creation. The Bible also tells us that in spite of God's goodness, the first human pair, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God's goodness and chose to go their own way. And so at this juncture, let's define sin. Sin is a violation of God's moral law or a violation of God's good intent. Let me say it again. Sin is a violation of God's law. That's the definition of sin. God's law is an expression of his goodness, and sin is to rebel against the rule of a law that is infinitely good. And I hope you heard that. 
Sin is not about feeling bad about ourselves. See, the concept of sin doesn't depend on how you feel about yourself at all. Whether or not you feel good about yourself or bad about yourself has absolutely no bearing on whether or not you're a sinner. Sin is breaking or violating God's law, his infinite goodness. So think of it this way. You know, you live in this country, and this country is a country that's governed by laws. When you live in this country, you're expected to keep the laws. You're not to think that you have the freedom to violate the laws at will. And as we like to say, ignorance of the law is no excuse. The law of the land is the law of the land. If you live here, you're not invited to keep the law. No, no, you're required to keep the law. But God owns all the earth. It's his and the earth is governed by his laws. If we violate God's laws, we're sinners. You you might therefore think that the nearest synonym for sin is the word criminal. A criminal is a lawbreaker, but a criminal has broken a nation's laws, whereas a sinner has broken divine, absolute, universal law. I hope you see sin is not a subjective word. It has very little to do with how you feel. It it has nothing to do with whether you have a high or a low opinion of yourself. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 1. It says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. That is, you are free from blame or free from God's prosecution if you walk in his laws or abide by his law or submit to his law. But if you break his law, you're not blameless, but you are subject to divine prosecution. And at the risk of being painfully redundant, let me just say it again. It's not about whether you feel you're blameless or whether all your friends think you're blameless or whether your culture thinks you're blameless or whether the times you live in say you're blameless. I say that because I hear people say, well, look, we live in the 21st century and we have new values today. Well, you might have new values, but God is timeless and God never changes. Look, if there is no God, or if the one true God had no law about what is good, then it would matter what year we live in. But if there is a God, it doesn't matter what year it is. It matters only what God's law actually says. In the month of June, Dr. Newfeld and a team from Back to the Bible Canada We'll be traveling to India to join the ministry team of Back to the Bible India to conduct two Bible teaching conferences in both Delhi and Hyderabad. These conferences will attract hundreds of pastors from these regions from multiple denominations in search of excellence in the instruction of expositional Bible teaching and to spend time in worship, fellowship, and offer encouragement amidst challenging and difficult circumstances of ministry. Perhaps this is a ministry venture you'd want to invest in. Your gift towards Back to the Bible Canada's international ministries would mean so much in support of this conference, the development and encouragement of pastors in these regions, and the airing of ongoing Bible teaching programs in Asia. To offer your support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. First John 3 verse 4 says sin is lawlessness. Notice the passage doesn't say sin is destructive behavior or selfishness or lashing out at others or abuse. No, sin is lawlessness. But what is God's law? 
Well, first of all, God's law has been objectively revealed. I mean, the Bible tells us that God brought Israel to Mount Sinai in Arabia. And there God entered into a covenant with his people. And there God gave them his moral law, also known as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the centerpiece of everything God expects of all human beings. I mean, they can easily be divided into two categories. The first category, or the first four laws, deal with our relationship with God. The last six deal with our relationship to our fellow human beings. And Jesus himself affirmed this kind of a division in the law. You see, on one occasion, he was approached by a lawyer who asked him what he must do to inherit eternal life. And in answer, Jesus began with a law. He said, what is written in the law? Well, in answer, the lawyer responded. And his answer is recorded in Luke 10, verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And then in response to that answer, Jesus told the lawyer, you have answered correctly. Indeed, he had answered correctly. But how do we know we're loving God? And how do we know we're loving our neighbor? Well, the Ten Commandments tell us. We love God when we have no other gods before him. We love God when we refuse to make a carved image of God or when we refuse to represent God in human terms and then worship our conception of God. We love God when we refuse to use the name of God in any matter outside of worship and honor. We love God when we refuse to use the sacred name as an expression. And we love God when we keep the Sabbath, reserving one day each week for worship. And we love our neighbor when we honor our father and mother, when we do not murder, when we do not commit adultery, when we do not steal or bear false witness, when we refuse to envy or covet that which belongs to our neighbor. Now that the purpose of those 10 laws is to explain what loving God and neighbor look like. You know, you may claim that you're loving God and neighbor, but here is the objective determination of whether you're keeping or breaking the law. Now, in the Old Testament, these 10 laws are then taken and applied to the national life of Israel. And so some of what we read in the Old Testament law was unique to Israel's national life and was not meant to be universally applied. But the 10 commandments were. These 10 laws are to be used to evaluate all of our lives. I mean, so, for instance, Jesus taught that lust is just another form of adultery in our heart, a deeply entrenched inner longing that delights to violate God's law. Unrighteous anger, taught Jesus, is the murder that lies within the heart. And by the time Jesus had finished his analysis of the Ten Commandments, which are a part of his famous Sermon on the Mount, well, he had pointed out that all of us are lawbreakers. We're all sinners. Ah, But still, I I could almost hear people objecting. It's just not fair. Some people haven't heard of God's law. To that, the Bible gives at least two answers. First, from Romans 2, verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That's to say, the Creator has not made us to be blank slates. The very nature of being human is to be created with an innate sense of God's law. No human being is ignorant of a deep, abiding sense that some things are right and some things are wrong. We don't think that because of the way we were raised or by what our parents thought or even what our culture thinks. We just think some things are deeply and darkly wrong. It is right there in our conscience. I know. 
conscience is unreliable. Conscience is easily manipulated. It's distorted, easily cauterized so that no longer feels anything. But that process of distorting conscience has to be learned. Initially, we do feel guilt, and initially, we do feel there's a moral law that supersedes our own opinion of things. We think that because we're created in the image of God and we know we're guilty. But there's another matter about which the Bible speaks. The very first command, that is, that we must have no other God, that law is understood by every human being. Romans 1 tells us that each individual knows intuitively that we owe worship to God, infinite debt of gratitude to him for everything, from the life that he has given us to the air we breathe to each joy we experience. And yet, rather than living lives of worship, we deliberately suppress the knowledge of God. And so here's what the Bible teaches about sin. First, it teaches Romans 3 verse 10, not as righteous, no, not one. And then in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, at this point, we could spend a great deal of time discussing three stark realities. The first is that every one of us deliberately chooses to violate God's law. The second is that we're also born into sin with a sin nature. And the third is that our first parents, Adam and Eve, are condemned along with their progeny. You know, that discussion, however, is probably more than we can consider today. So let's keep our attention on our own choices and the choices that we've all made to deliberately violate God's law. Just how pervasive is our sin? Are we basically good people who sometimes slip up, or are we lawless through and through? Well, in order to answer that question, let me propose that the last person to ask about how we're doing is the lawbreaker himself. So imagine a human criminal investigation, which goes like this. A man's been caught after having robbed a bank. And so the police ask him, how often have you robbed banks? And the criminal says, I've never done this before. And to that, the police respond, well, if you say so, we've got to believe that. You and I would never let matters lie at that. And in the same way, if you ask a sinner just how pervasive is your sin, please understand the sinner is the last person to ask. You have to allow for a thorough investigation. And in this case, it is God who investigates, for his is the only objective measure as to how sinful we are. Now, to be fair, not everyone sins as grievously as others. I know. Jesus said as much when he, in in Matthew 23, verse 23, spoke of the weightier matters of the law. But also, to be fair, sin is ultimately a crime against God's goodness and against his righteousness. So listen to the words of Leviticus 5, verse 17. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, I hope you see this, God, not us, determines the weight of our sins. And furthermore, God has already rendered his verdict. See, Romans 3 says, no one truly seeks God. All use their tongues to harm others. All curse with their mouths. All have feet that are swift to destroy others. There really is no fear of God in anyone. God is the objective investigator, and he has now completed his investigation. That's his finding. Well then, having established that, what is God to do with us? I know there are some who have been trained to think that when we think about these things, that we should think about things in terms of venial and mortal sins. You know, we think about venial sins as the lesser sins that can be forgiven, and then there's the mortal sins. These result in death. Listen, In truth, the Bible declares that all sins are mortal sins. 
Ezekiel 18 verse 20 says, the soul that sins shall die. And Romans 3.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And it is that black and dark scenario that finally brings us to the cross of Jesus. For the Bible tells us that Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree. The suffering of Jesus is a divine substitute. He that is righteous suffered in the place of those of us who are unrighteous. John 3 verse 16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, of course, there's so much more to say about the cross, and I'm going to endeavor to do that in the coming days. But I do know this. The cross is only precious after we understand how hopeless we are. We need to hear the words of Ephesians 2 verse 1, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. That is, your sentence has already been passed. You're dead in sin. It means there's no way out, and death is what awaits you. And it does no good to say, I'm going to reform. You see, the thing is, it's not about reforming yourself. It's about bearing the sentence for your crimes against God's goodness. Clearly, we, that is, both you and I need a Savior. We need someone who will rescue us from our predicament. We need rescue from God's judgment. We need rescue from our inner delight in being lawless. Is there an answer? There is, and that answer is found in the story of Easter. It is the story of the cross of Jesus. John, it occurs to me that uh, we use a lot of substitutes today for for the word sin. And, And for some reason, we're uncomfortable. So we'll say a person does this misdeed or that misdeed or does this wrong or that wrong. But very seldom will you say your action was actually a sin. Why is that? Yeah, and not only that. Well, Ben, I think sin, of course, is is a violation of God's law. And I think it's that part that really makes us uncomfortable. But there's another part that makes us uncomfortable as well. And Ben, I think it has everything in the world to do with the fact that we love to point the finger almost Pharisaic-like at someone else and say, you're an abuser, you're a violator of some sort. But the rest of us can look on and, and, and cluck our tongues and, and say, man, I know that I'm not like that. I think that universality of sin, that we all stand guilty before a holy and righteous God, that every single individual stands condemned, I think that is so unconscionable in our culture that it's just met with just vitriol. I mean, we just don't like it and uh, we just don't want to hear it. I think that's, that's where our culture is. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our Easter series, Easter, It's Purpose and Promise, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The Gospel of John challenges a new generation to re-examine what it means to live in genuine faith, to live based on the truths Jesus taught. Dr. Newfeld begins volume two of his study on the Gospel of John called, Why Follow Jesus? It calls us to examine our hearts and to ask, why should I follow Jesus? That question drives this ministry, a question that demands an answer. This month, search out that question for yourself as you listen. But also, we invite you to have a copy of Why Follow Jesus on CD for free. 
And as an added bonus, request a copy in print of the Gospel of John for yourself or to pass on to someone asking questions about Jesus. So call today and request Why Follow Jesus? And as an added bonus, receive a copy of the Gospel of John all for free by simply calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.